Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by America's Choice Windows, where you'll get 10 windows for just $36.80. Jay, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hey, Jim. I love your show. Wouldn't be Saturday without you. Thank you. Uh, I've got a uh, brick walkway leading into my house, and it's disintegrating. And I don't know whether I need some ideas, whether you can overlay that with some type of concrete or something or rip it out and start all over again. When you say it's disintegrating, what's it doing? Uh, Actually, the bricks are breaking up. It's uh, probably that cheap, inexpensive brick that they put in versus acne or something like that. Okay. And and these are these bricks are down on the walkway itself that you're walking on, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, you do have a choice. You know, a couple choices. One is to obviously rip them out and and do whatever you're going to do new on there. How much overlay could you put on it? In other um, words, you, you got room to put like two inches on it. Sure. Yes. Okay. If you got room to go two inches or more, you can overlay concrete on top of it. And, you know, that would give you a a different surface. As far as putting other bricks or anything like that, you can. uh, They're not going to adhere very well simply because if the brick that's there is crumbling, no matter what you glue to it, could tend to crumble as well. The only reason you can get away with putting concrete over the top is the concrete would be its, its own surface. Everything else would pretty much have to adhere to what you got there. And if it's just falling apart it's not going to make a good subsurface for you. Got you. Very good. I appreciate it. All righty. Take care. Steve, how can I help you today? Hey, I've got a, my mother-in-law lives with me, and she's upstairs. Knees are getting bad. So I've been thinking about putting like a single-stall garage with a living quarters attached. Um, I want to keep it in the same keeping of my home, but I'm, you know, I worry about property values. I get my money back out of it. What sure. should I be looking at a square foot versus just a garage price? You know, the square foot price all depends on what you put in for amenities. Right. I mean, your your starting basic square foot per price is typically going to be. Are you building this from scratch, or, or or do you have a garage that would be redone? No, I'm building this from scratch. I had one guy come out because because I've got a pretty big garage. He's like, let's just turn this into the whole living quarters, and then I'll just build you a garage. It'll be cheaper. But I really don't buy that because if I put a restroom in there and kitchen, I've got a plumb. Yep. i got to raise the slab. i got to get insulation behind the sheetrock. Yeah. Well, what, you, what you're looking at then per square foot is typically going to be somewhere between 75 and $85 dollars basic that's just the raw basic stuff your amenities then go on top of that yeah amenities yep <laughs> okay Can now I, uh, when i say the... basic i mean that's going to put in a formica type countertops and and uh a fiberglass shower things like that so anything that you if you want to move up from formica to granite that's going to add to the square footage price yeah well some of that i was thinking about finishing on my own, you know, 
I've had some granite people. I've got granite in my house. So I think I could, you know, some of it I could probably do after the fact. If I can get sure. the brick and mortar up and then it possibly do some on the side, I'm, I don't want to do too much myself. I'm, I'm getting, you know, a little older. But uh, so 75, You don't sound like you're old, so I think you can handle it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And then getting your money out of it. Yeah. Uh, that's for that, a, that's you a have bigger to, concern for me. Well, you have to look at basically the neighborhood that you're in or the area that you're in mm-hmm. and take a look at what the highest price houses can sell for in your area. Uh, and, it, you know, if you're near that size of house and all that stuff, your chances of being able to get 100% of what you put into this out are very low. Now, if you're if you're one of the smaller houses in the neighborhood, you got room to to add on and get up to the bigger square footages and all that stuff, then you can typically get it out. Yeah, no, I'm the opposite. I, I'm not the biggest in the neighborhood, but I'm probably you know it's a small, really small neighborhood with about 65 houses, and I'm probably in the top three or four size. Yeah. Level. Well, your chance of of and I'm not saying you can't, but your chance of getting it all out completely, probably not going to happen. Uh, but it all depends on how long you stay in the house, too. Right. In other words, if you stay in the house, say, 10 years, you're going to probably get all your money back. But if you built this thing and decide you're going to sell three years from now, no, you're probably not. Okay. Well, man, 10 years, 8 to 10 is a, probably my cycle. Then I think you'll probably be all right. All right. I because just it. just the sheer increase of value of properties themselves will raise it enough where you should get your money out. That sounds good. I All right. It. You All bet. Right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Again, our number seven one three two one two five eight seven four. And and that anytime you're doing a remodeling job, you've got to take a look at what the neighborhood can stand if if you're if you're in a I'm just going to use round easy numbers right now if you're in a neighborhood where the average house is 1800 square feet and you live in a 1200 square foot house you got room to expand and everything and still be within the neighborhood limits if you're in a neighborhood though 1800 square feet is this is uh, the larger houses and you're at 17 and you're looking at a 500 square foot addition you're way above the norm you will struggle to get that money back out anytime soon. Not to say over the long haul you can't, but anytime soon, it more than likely won't happen. So you've always got to keep those time frames in mind whenever you're doing additions on homes. And then that, and the same thing goes for any type of major remodeling. You know, if you're in a, a neighborhood where the standard house is 150000 uh, if you do something that's going to put it way above the 150 mark, you, you're going to struggle to get it out. You just got to take a look at each neighborhood, what the high end is, what the low end is, and where you realistically at at this point in time. And then it all goes for your comfort. That's what you have to remember. Gary, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hello, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I need you to put a small group discussion to to sleep for me. Uh-oh. And the discussion is, is there any difference in the quality of plumbing fixtures or supplies 
that you would get at a big box store like Home Depot or Lowe's versus uh, a private plumbing dealer like Moore Supply. And and I've been told, yes, there is a difference. One has like plastic inside and the other has brass. And, 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 yep. and then, then, then uh, one person told me, well, no, if it's the same item, it's not going to be different. How could it be different if it's the same stock number? And so I'm, I'm here to ask you that. These typically the the supplies that you get at the big box stores like that, they are different. In other words, uh, the 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 plum like the faucets like that. Yes, they're made different. And huh. the the person who's telling you brass versus versus the plastic inside is a hundred percent right. Wow. Okay. When it comes to even the lawnmowers, John Deere lawnmowers, for instance. The ones you get at a, you know, regular John Deere store uh-huh. are different than the ones you'll get at Lowe's and Home Depot and stores like that. Because they push them so hard on pricing, they have to dumb them down and, and make them different in order to meet the cost that the stores put on them. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I'm surprised. Okay. Yeah. But that's what I needed to know. So I appreciate yep. it. All righty. Yeah, Take care. You. you bet. Bye-bye. Yeah, and, and typically what you're going to find, ooh, that phone had a buzz, didn't it? Typically what you're going to find is there is a little bit of difference in that stock number. In other words, uh, it'll have like a, and I'm throwing numbers, but a nine-digit number with an L on the back when it's in, say, a, a one of the big box stores versus just the nine-digit number at a regular plumbing supply store like More Plumbing Supply. Roland, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing fine. Uh, hey, back in uh, back in the in June, we found out that our air conditioning system was two pounds low refrigerant. So we had it charged, and it cooled throughout the summer. And here, just this past couple of weeks ago, we also found again it was low, two pounds again. So obviously we have a leak somewhere. Right. My question is, what uh, just to hold us over for maybe next summer? Are any of these um, sealants that you can inject into the system worth their weight in gold, or can you give me some kind of uh, opinion on them, or have you used them in the past? Just kind of shed the shed the light. Would, in I would not recommend it. And and main reason I tell you that, you've got a small hole that the ceiling's gonna would try to plug up, and what you have to remember is that air conditioning system. The way it works is it's got small ports all through the compressor and everything, and by by putting that stuff in there, it can start sealing up other things that you don't want sealed up. It's and shorten the life of the compressor, so okay. I, I really wouldn't recommend doing that. All right. Well, that was that was basically it. So I guess uh, we have to start looking into um, contracting somebody to replace the well, evaporator because uh, our condenser was replaced two years ago. So I'm suspect that a leak is in the evaporator. I would definitely have it checked to find out where it's at, though, because if that other coil, it doesn't happen often. But, you know, one, one of the companies that Due West has is an air conditioning company, and it doesn't happen often. But sometimes you get coils 
that already have a pinhole in them. Yeah. Okay. And so you need to have it checked. Oh, and it may not even be in the coils. It could be in a line somewhere. Never thought about that. Shane, how can I help you? Yes, I had a question. I want to add a deck to the back of my house. Okay. And I've been told if I don't spend $10,000, I don't need to pull, pull a permit. And the biggest trouble I'll have is with my HOA, not the city. I agree um, with that. The biggest problem you'll have is with the HOA, not the city. But okay, the city doesn't care. care of because the HOA can't see it, and their regulation states if you can't see it from the road, then Then it don't no count for them. Now, as far as the city's concerned, they don't care if, if it's $1,500 or $15,000. Permitting requirements are not based on, you know, don't start at a dollar amount like that um, my question to you is do I is I'm gonna sell the home in about four four or five years uh-huh if I do a floating deck and just you know maybe put a roof and put a piece of flashing underneath would that detract from the value of adding a deck or is that considered normal uh, floating deck and attach it so it doesn't leak rain Well, I'm a little lost why you would think it would detract. Well, just, I mean, if someone said, hey, that's not how you put a roof to a house, you know, it's into the wall of a house. I just okay. wanted to, to build it up, butt it up against the back of the house, put a roof over the top of it, and put a piece of flashing under the hardy plank that it happens to line up with. Gotcha. You're, you're not coming off the roof line itself. You're wanting to Correct. just tie into it like a two-story wall? Yes. yes. Okay. On a two-story wall, that would be somewhat normal to okay. do it that way. So, yeah, you, would, you shouldn't have any problems with that. Okay, I just didn't want to have, like, a home inspection at sale time, and they're just like, you know, what Yahoo did that? <laughs> well, I would make sure that you do it, you know, to where it, it's tied in solid, where uh, you're tied into either the studs or the boards, but, you know, the, the floor joist between the two floors. Sure. Uh, and yes, flash up underneath the siding. You got the lap siding. Yes. Yeah. Put your flashing up underneath it. That keeps you from having any leaks. And make sure you got a good enough slope on it that when the water gets on the the this new roof, it actually flows off without backing up. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate. You bet. It. You take care. Bye. Bye. Again, our number seven one three two one two five eight seven four. And one thing I forgot to mention: get that permit because you don't want the city coming out and making you take it down because you didn't permit it. Uh, and they can do that. It's rare, but they can do it. All right, let's get ready and head back into the calls at 713-212-5874. We're going to Conroe, and is it rain? Yes, sir. How can I help you? Yes, sir. You had a caller a few minutes ago that was talking about the, uh, the insulation in the attic. Yes. He was saying uh, that some sunlight came through in places on his roof, things like that. Um, I have a cousin that works in air conditioning, and one of the things they do in off-season is uh, they use some type of putty or something to uh, seal up the attics. Uh, I was just wondering if that, uh, I mean, does, does that really help? 
Well, and, and to be honest with you, if water's not coming in where you're seeing light coming in, leave it alone. Okay. Uh, because a lot of times, like ridge vents, for instance, you're going to see light coming in through ridge vents. Um, that's a, a, an escape for the hot air that gets in the attic. Now, if it's in you know, corners where there should be flashing and things like that, yeah, you want to seal all that kind of stuff up. Any place where water could come in, you want to seal up. But there's a lot of places for attic ventilation where you do see light coming in. And, and a lot of times people think, well, I shouldn't see any light, but you actually should. Yes, sir. Another thing is uh, a friend of mine was saying that he was getting an exhaust fan, like an ex- like a solar-powered exhaust fan for his yeah. attic. To, uh, so that kind of runs counter to what I was hearing from my cousin in, in air conditioning. Well, what the exhaust fans do is if the humidity level or the heat gets too high, they'll kick in and they start sucking air in through the soffit vents to bring fresh air back into the attic. And that, you know, that helps to keep the temperatures under control and the humidity levels under control. Don't ever mix that, though, with other ventilation. In other words, if you got whirly birds or ridge vents or any of that kind of stuff, all that's got to be sealed up if you put a solar-powered fan up there. But my favorite way to ventilate an attic is continuous soffit vents. And then with that, either use a ridge vent. My second would be to use a solar fan then I get into air hawks and whirly birds. My least favorite that I, I never recommend to use is an electric-powered fan, only because they short out a lot and cause fires and stuff. Oh, okay. Well, I sure appreciate your knowledge, and I appreciate your help, sir. I was Alrighty. curious about that. Thank Take you. care, Rain. All right, you do the same. Bye. 713-212-5874. And... You know, ventilation in the attic, a lot of people underestimate what that can do for you. You know, everybody always wants to just throw more insulation and or throw radiant barriers and all that at it. If you don't have the ventilation going, you're still going to have problems with the heat buildup in that attic. So you've always got to make sure to ventilate it properly as well. And like I said, continuous soffit vents are the best way to go. When we left, I was talking with Dennis and Dennis is wanting to remove a fireplace. Now, Dennis, is the fireplace in the middle of the house or on an outside wall? Where's it at? It links the living room to the master bedroom. Okay, so it's it's uh, an interior. And is it the fireplace only goes out into the living room, or does it is it two sided where it shows in the master bedroom as well? No, sir. It's it's just in the living room. Okay. Here's the things you'll run into. You're, you're going to pull it down. Obviously, you're going to have a hole that goes all the way up through the attic, into up in through the roof. So you're going to have to do some roof decking up there and reshingling up there. Not that big a deal. Down in the bottom, typically, they, they start those fireplaces right on top of the concrete itself. Now, how old a house is this, though? 82. Okay, 82. 82, they would have been starting it on the, on just a regular concrete there. If you get back into the 40s and and earlier, they actually had it recessed. But by 82, they were pretty much just, they'd pour the slab and then come up with the fireplace right on top of it. Um, so that part's not going to be a big deal. If you got gas to it, you'll have to cap the gas lines in the walls. 
and you're going to end up rebuilding the wall between the and I shouldn't say rebuilding it. You're going to have to fill in the wall between the master and the living room because yeah. uh you know, there's not going to ha it's probably not going to have any sheetrock and stuff on it when you take the fireplace down. Now, in yeah. some cases it will, but most of the time it doesn't. And I guess one of the questions I had it was a concern of my wife. I'm not really too familiar with it, but um because it's a brick fireplace going all the way up, is this one of the sturdy points of my house? No. Okay. That's uh, what I was thinking, but, you know. Yeah, fireplace, fireplaces are strictly for looks. Uh, and and the, way you can tell, the way you can tell if they were no house built in, 80s, in the 80s are, are going to make the fireplace as part of the structural component to hold the house up. That, that dates all back into the early 1900s. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like I got some projects ahead of me then. I appreciate your help, sir. Uh, it, and it's uh, let me tell you up front, it's going to be extremely dusty, dirty, uh -huh. and it's going to take more than a weekend to do. Oh, that's why I was probably <laughs> going to contract it out. I was just looking at what all I was going to have to get into. And I do have a gas line that runs that I, it, uh, because I have small children and uh -huh. the way the gas line was, I tapped it off a long time, or I tapped it off a long time ago. But, uh, but the line still is live going through it so now from I my own to... from my own curiosity i have to ask why do you want to take it out um to tell you the truth it, it completely cuts my living room in half it's that big of a fireplace okay it, it, it's going to change once i take it out it'll, it'll actually change my living room from a 17 by 23 to a 23 by 23 wow okay so and it's texas why does anybody need a fireplace i, I, I will give you the answer to that <laughs> For looks, and it does add value. Surprisingly enough, there are people who will not buy a house without one. Really? Yeah. So hmm. you, you, you may take it. It won't be big, but you may take a slight hit on, on the home value. Okay. Well, I'll take all that into consideration. I really appreciate your time, sir. You bet. Take care. All right. Bye. bye. And, and, and let me tell everybody up front, it's not a big hit. I mean, if you don't like the fireplace, take it out. I mean, it's 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 definitely your house, and you gotta make it where you're comfortable living there. But uh, there there are people out there who will not consider buying a house unless it has a fireplace. And he's right; it's Texas. What do we need them for? We need them to hang our stockings for Santa Claus and to to give the house a little bit of appeal on Thanksgiving and Christmas Day when we put the fireplace or the fire in it and have the air conditioner running full blast to make up for it. I did have an e email that came in, and I think this is kind of, if it's not current topic, it soon will be when we do start getting cold fronts, or good cold, cold fronts. Hi, Jim. I enjoy listening to your show. We are looking for a house to buy. I was surprised at how many houses have electric heat. Is it usually cost-effective to change a house from electric to gas heat? If a house has gas heat, is it usually cost-effective to add the connections for a gas stove oven if there is already a space for the gas appliance and if you have to redo the kitchen cabinets to install a gas appliance i'm expecting you to say no to the above but thought i'd ask anyways i believe gas heat is much more efficient let me know if that's not correct thanks well let's talk about it for a second if you have the choice to go with gas or electric, go with gas. It is cheaper 
to run than electric. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Natural gas is absolutely the way to go for heat. And just to give you an idea, if you're running electric heat, your electric bill can be as much as $600 or more to keep the house warm when we start getting into really cold weather. That's a lot of money. Gas is just so much cheaper. And, quite frankly, a lot of times more comfortable as well. But changing it out, is it cost-effective to change it out? Well, if you, if first thing you look at, does the house even have gas to it? If it doesn't have gas to it, chances of you being able to get gas to it are probably pretty slim, unless you happen to be in an older neighborhood where gas was brought in later. Or you decide to put in a tank and use LP instead of natural gas. Now, the, the big difference, though, on the, on the resetting of everything is you've got to run all the pipes if they're not already there. That's where the expense comes in. Because when you're building a new house, it's easy to run the pipes. And there's no sheetrock, all that stuff, so you just run the pipes wherever you want them. Once all the sheetrock is up, it becomes a lot more tedious, one, to get up in the attic to run the pipes, two, to drop them down in the walls. Well, if you're running them from the outside in, your big problem is the way eaves are on houses, you typically can't get up to the outside wall to run the gas pipes down. So you end up running the pipe on the outside of the wall, which doesn't look that good. But let's go with the assumption you've already got gas to the house. Then absolutely change out. Now the secondary question, can you run it to a gas uh, or gas to a uh, stovetop or oven? Absolutely. And especially if that wall that it's going to be on is an interior wall, you don't have to tear the cabinets off because you typically can drill through the plate up in the attic, drop the pipe down, find it behind the sheetrock, and put the stub out into the room where you can hook it up to the appliance. So it's absolutely able to be done. Is it cheap? No. Will you like cooking on it better? More than likely. Is it less expensive? Absolutely. Are you going to recoup the money you put into it and that's a big one probably not but you're going to be a lot more comfortable on the gas heater though are you going to recoup what you put into it yeah probably so because the difference is when you're running gas heat versus electric heat it's typically less than half the cost so let's just say you take $600 a month and you cut it in half. That's $300 a month going towards it. And let's say it costs you $3,000 to run the pipes. Ten months. That's probably two, maybe three winters. Yeah, you can recoup that. Plus, on top of that, it does add to the resale if you go to sell the house. There's a lot of people who look for houses with gas, just like you were looking, and were surprised to find so many with electric heat. I think the biggest problem you're going to find, though, if gas was available, it was probably already run. And if it wasn't run, more than likely the gas isn't available. And that's what you really have to deal with. Matthew, how can I help you today? I've got a pure and beam house built back in the 60s, and it is having problems with its 
is cracking. My walls are cracking. And I want to do the work myself. I want to see if I can save myself money and get a – now, I can crawl under the house. I've been under there many times. It's not a ton of space. What kind of work would entail for me to get under there to – like, I was thinking about digging two-foot holes, filling it with concrete, putting a jack under there, jack it up, then somehow prop it up after I get it to the level it's supposed to be. Okay. I'm going to help you out with this. Now, you, you know one of the companies I own is Foundation Repair, and I've been doing that since uh, 1978. So mm-hmm. I, I know a few things on Foundation Repair. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a certified Foundation Repair specialist. There's only, I think, 47 of us right now in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to give you a quick crash course on how you can do this yourself. One, forget about pouring concrete. Okay. Uh, on on a block and base or pier and beam, anytime you're working in the crawl space area, use the pre-made yep. base pads. Okay. Uh, you know, you can get them. They're four inches thick. And basically, you can drag that underneath to the area that you need. And when you do reset and, ha- and have to build up a new station that way, dig that down into the ground. Make sure it's nice and flat underneath it. Do not overdig, though, and then try to put loose soil back in to level it out because that will guarantee that that base pad's not going to hold and it will break. Okay. You want to dig it down nice and flat and keep it on solid ground. The second thing I'm going to tell you, as, as much as possible, do not add any of these base pads. As much as possible, you want to go back and reuse the existing spots that already have things on them. And the reason for that. It, the the weight has been on those pads for a long time, and it creates a ball of pressure in the soil underneath those base pads. And basically what it's done is squeezed moisture out from underneath there. So anytime you set new stations, and that's what they're called as new stations, you're actually having to realign that soil to match the older ones. And uh-huh. it's going to be moving at a different rate all the time and if you thought you had movement in the home now when you have to reset new stations that way that first few years and it takes that long you have massive amounts of movement and so as much as possible you don't want to have to set up new stations and and how old did you say this house is it's built back in the 60s 67 okay it sat there all these years with these stations under it what has changed and that's what you really have to look at. Has a board warped, rotted, something like that. Work on those items instead of okay. setting new base pads somewhere. Okay, excellent. And I, then I'm as a, far I've got it, a lot of work ahead of me, don't I? Oh, you do. Because as far as setting up to actually level the place, you're going to want to use uh, hydraulic bottle jacks because those are uh-huh. the easiest thing to get underneath there. Used to be they did them with railroad jacks and things like that, but the, the, the hydraulic bottle jacks are much easier. You're going to need, at minimum, a dozen of them. Okay. And you can you know spread them. Like if you're lifting up on a beam, put those things, one on each side of those stations that you have, and okay. you'll jack them up just a little bit at a time. And underneath the jacks, in order to have something solid to jack off of, simply take two-by-sixes, that you've cut into about two foot lengths uh-huh. and lay them uh, in one direction and then on top of it in the opposite direction. Put your jack then on top of that. So it's kind of like a checkerboard out of the two okay. by sixes. 
and that will keep your jacks from sinking down into the soil. Yes, sir. And as far, once you got it picked up, you steel shims to uh, shim it off on top of the existing stuff. If it's got old wood and, and, and things in there, because that used to be real common, take that out and replace it with steel shims. Excellent. Now, to, get, to get some steel shims, um, there's a place in town called 2000 Industries. Uh-huh. And they're over off 35, just north of 635. Okay. And they sell all the stuff for that. Excellent. Well, I think I've got, yeah, I've got, I'm going to try to do my house uh, all myself. I want to do, I want to run electric, too, because the electric, when I went up in the attic, some squirrels have chewed through a little bit of the line. And that scared when I saw that. Yeah. Can I yeah. wrap that? Should I wrap that in some electrical tape? Well, yeah, what you're going to find is you're going to have more and more of that because as the wires have aged, that plastic coating that's on the outside becomes a, a candy to the rodents. Okay. And so they'll be chewing on it, and they'll make it where those two wires can touch, and, yeah, that can cause a short. So you yeah. want to go up there, and you're going to have to split the wires apart and wrap them both so that they don't touch each other. Yeah. And, and i got to be straight up. Even, even at that. You're not meeting code because anytime there's a break in a line, it, it's supposed to be in a uh, in a box, uh -huh. so that you know everybody knows exactly where it's at and it can be controlled and all that. So you are at the point where it's time to start running new wires. Yeah, yeah. It's just I'm trying to do it and save money right now. Yeah. So it's just a, the electric scares the dickens out of me. I would not recommend you doing your own electric. <laughs> I've already, at one point, I had, uh, before we had a new box put on outside, yeah. and we, we had the glass fuses still inside, and uh, I touched a wire, or I was going to plug in a space heater in my room. It arced out inside the plug, yep. which created the white light that I saw. And, uh, was I, that before or after you got knocked out from... No, I'm just Oh, my <laughs> gosh, I couldn't believe it. It didn't get me, and everybody just looked at me like, are you dead? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a scary move. Well, here's the main reason I don't recommend you do it yourself, though. It, you have to be licensed to do electrical work. Now, foundation repair, you don't have to have any type of license, training, or anything else. That's oh. Wild West in Texas. But for electrical, air conditioning, and plumbing, you're supposed to be licensed. Now, if you're doing, if you're just changing out a plug or something, that is that's totally fine. But when it gets into rewiring a house... Yeah, you want to make sure that you've you've got it done by somebody with the license and permits were pulled because if you ever go to sell the house, uh, uh -huh. you don't want to run into trouble on inspections. Yep. And if that. if something ever happened where something shorted and the house caught fire, you don't want the homeowner, the, you know, the next homeowner coming back after you because you did something wrong. Yeah, I could be liable at that point. Exactly. So. All right. Well, hey, thank you for uh, taking the time out today. Hey, one last item. If you need to get some hydraulic jacks, uh, yeah. they, they are not the best hydraulic jacks in the world, but for what you're going to be doing, you know, and you're not going to be using these things every day, the cheapest place to go get them for a do-it-yourselfer is Northern Tool and Supply. That's exactly my thoughts right there. I, that's one of my favorite stores in the world. And if and you know you know how they are. If you talk with them and you're going to buy more than one or two items, they will discount the price for you. Well, you know what? I just got to get all my 
ducks in a row and stuff and get down there and get it taken care of. So. Yep. All righty. Take care, Matthew. Well, hey, thank you so much. Hey, if you run into problems and you got questions on that when you're doing it, just give me a holler. I'll be more than happy to walk you through it. Well, I appreciate it so much. All righty. Take care. 214-787-1080. That's 214-787-1080. And why am I telling somebody how to level their own house when that's what I do for a living? Because Pier and Beam Homes, the interior part, and block and base homes, all of the stations that are you know just sitting on pads that way, they are that is the easiest leveling you can do. It's relatively simple. You just got to make sure you got plenty of bracing underneath there and don't make the mistake of going under and taking stations out and leaving the house sit on jacks. Always leave the stations in place in case your jacks give out. There have been people killed underneath homes. Uh, in the last uh, five years, I know of at least three people that have gotten killed, and it's typically people who are inexperienced. And the biggest mistake they make is they start removing stations to put in different ones. If you got to take out a station to put in a new one, you do one at a time and make sure you got it braced. Don't rely on the jacks. Bonnie, how can I help you? I have a home here in North Dallas, and uh, it's a pier and beam home with an attached garage. And uh, uh, my call is primarily about the garage. Okay. Uh, the foundation walls and brick construction outside of the garage is not cracked, but the floor has several big cracks in them. And the front of the garage, where the, the double door is, the elevation uh, is about two inches low on the downhill side. Okay. And there's a short crack from the top of the garage door there up to the roof, and that's about 16 inches. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. Well, it sounds like you probably got multiple things going on. Uh, when you say this is a double car garage, there's no post in the middle, correct? No, no. Okay. What's happening there more than likely is the the header across the garage door opening is sagging a little bit. And when that happens, you will get a crack in the middle, and it'll be wider at the bottom and narrower at the top. Hmm. And it's not uncommon for those headers headers to sag this house was probably built in what the 50s in the mid 60s mid 60s okay and it has what they call a floating concrete floor yep yep and and that's what i was going to get at um because that's that's kind of what they used to do is pour a perimeter concrete beam and then come in and pour the four inch flat work inside the garage mm. The cracks that you're getting, are they opening up to where they're about three-quarters of an inch wide now? Well, uh, I started uh, uh, with uh, uh, soaker hoses, uh, watering them about oh, uh, once a week or so uh, for about oh, just a soaker, uh, uh, a small drip for, uh -huh. say, a half hour each, each week. And they have pretty well closed up, but, of course, they're still there. Sure. If you've gotten them to close up doing the watering that way, by all means, you keep watering and don't let that, those cracks themselves, don't let that concern you. Okay. All concrete cracks by nature. Steel is in it to hold it together. And unfortunately, with a lot of these homes with the 4-inch uh, flat work inside the garage that way, 
when they built them in the 50s and 60s, they didn't put steel in that concrete. Exactly, and there's no rebars in there at it, all. It, exactly. So eventually you'll end up taking that concrete out and putting new concrete in. But the fact that you're able to stabilize it with the moisture around it means that's all you need to do at this point and just save your money. But I, but do you think I need pier, a pier on the outside uh, where it... Uh, is like two uh, two and a half inches low, lower than low below grade. Well, but you're talking about the four inch flat work inside that's low, right? Well, see the uh, uh, well the opening. Well, let's see. You, you see because you're crack? not seeing any cracks in the brick and such. There, the only crack is above the garage door. Yeah. Where, and, and it's and of course it's only like say 16 inches to the roof roof line yeah. there. I mean, we'd be more than happy to come out and take a look at it for you, Bonnie, but it doesn't, it, it sounds like what you need is maintenance issues addressed at this point. Now, I said I was going to talk about watering systems for a minute, and watering, you can get a professional installed watering system. Do West puts them in all the time, but you can do it yourself. Soaker hoses do a great job. The biggest problem, and Bonnie brought it up, the biggest problem most people have with watering is they don't do it often enough. To properly water the foundation, you need to give it a little bit of water daily. And so what I tell people to do is 15 minutes twice a day, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, have the soaker hoses go all the way around the house. You're going to find that you get more water at the beginning of the soaker hose than you do the end. So to balance it out, you need to put a pressure regulator on it. City pressure comes out at between 50 and 80 PSI. Drop that down to about 20, 15 to 20 PSI. And this is readily available at your box stores or Ace Hardware, different places like that. It's just a little plastic piece or brass that screws on to the hose bib, and it regulates the pressure. The next thing you need to do, you got to have a timer. Because you're not going to go out there and turn this thing on and off twice a day. At best, you'll do it once a week or so. But it needs that little bit of water daily because our soils only absorb about an eighth of an inch of water an hour. So if you give it a lot of water and it starts puddling and running off, you're, you're wasting water. You're giving it too much. By giving it just a little bit twice a day, it allows it to soak in. And you're trying to get this moisture to soak down five, six, seven feet deep. So it takes some time. And the reason you're trying to get it that deep, those are the soils that expand and can pick the foundation back up. Beyond that, the weight of the soil itself is too heavy to pick up. Not that the soils aren't expansive, it's just they can't pick themselves up after that. So to really do this right, what you'll do is get a battery-operated timer, have that pressure regulator, and then have a Y, and I actually recommend two Ys. One that you screw straight onto the hose bib before you hook anything else up, and you have your control system coming off on one side of it, and then where you can still hook up a garden hose on the other side. So you, as soon as I come off the, the Y, I'm going to put my timer, then I'm going to put my pressure regulator, then I may put a filter sit, uh, on there, and I do recommend that because we get a lot of crud in our water. Then I'm going to put that second Y 
and I'm going to send the soaker hoses out in two directions around the house. Keep the soaker hoses 12 to 18 inches away from the foundation. And when you get energetic or you got someone who is energetic, bury it anywhere from 2 to 8 inches in the ground. Because when it's sitting on the surface, you're losing about 20% of the water to evaporation. By getting it buried a little bit, that moisture soaks in. And basically what you're trying to do is make a nice moist ring around the home. Now, sometimes people start saying, well, I'm just going to leave it on for a few hours, and then you're oversaturating the soil, and you can do as much harm oversaturating the soil as you can by not having any moisture in the soil. Now, a couple cautions on, on using watering systems. If you've got a lot of trees around your home, be prepared that you're going to need to put in some root barriers, because if you don't, when you start putting this moisture around, the, the first time you get a little dry like we are right now, the tree roots realize, hey, there's moisture over here. They come looking for it. And they will grow that way, and you cannot water enough to keep up with trees. A 30-foot oak tree can take three to 500 gallons a day out of the soil. And that will wreak havoc with your foundation. So this will give you, though, a moist ring because it's impossible to keep it totally dry around the foundation all the time because our weather cycles change but you can keep it moist. And if we get into a heavy rain cycle where it's raining every day, you know, for a couple weeks, go ahead and cut it off. When it stops raining, turn it back on. You do have to go out and check the soil, you know, like once every quarter or so. Just take a large screwdriver and stick it in the ground. If the soil comes out moist, perfect. If you can't get the screwdriver in the ground because it's still hard and dry and the soil is pulling away from the foundation, you maybe need to kick it up to 20 or 25 minutes for a while, twice a day. And if you stick it in the screwdriver in the ground, you pull it out and you get that slurpy sound because it's so wet, cut it back to 10 minutes twice a day. You do have to play with it at different times of the year to keep the moisture levels where you need them. Now, I did do a video on this, and if you want to go to DuWest, that's du-west.com, there are detailed written instructions there on how to do a watering system, and there's a do-it-yourself video on how to do it. So all that's available online. Go to thipro.com and click on the link to do West to get there, though. That's an easier website to remember. That's thipro. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to thipro.com.